interesting story I read this week about an old explorer. Have any of y'all ever heard of Ernest Shackleton? Anybody heard of Ernest Shackleton? A couple of you. Well, he was an explorer uh, from the UK who many years and years and years ago, he wasn't just a general explorer, he explored Antarctica. And uh, he's known for traversing the continent. He has this one famous, I mean, he went, he went down there several times, but he has one famous trip, there's a book about it, that he went across, their ship got stranded, and they had to walk across the continent, he and his men. Uh, well, one particular journey down there to Antarctica some of his men got into some sickness, and they got to the northernmost tip of Antarctica. I believe it's called, I've got it written here, I think it's Elephant Island, because it looks like on Antarctica, an elephant's trunk coming off the top. And Elephant Island is the very, very tippy top of that, still several hundred miles from Antarctica proper, and well over a thousand miles from South America. But these men were in no condition to make the trip across Antarctica. And so they left them there on, an, on Elephant Island and said, we're going to make this trip and we'll be back shortly. So Shackleton and the rest of his crew sailed on down. They did their uh, exploring. And as they were coming back to pick up the men they had left on Elephant Island, uh, a, a frost had come in and had frozen all of the water around Elephant Island. So Shackleton wasn't able to get to the island. They made three specific attempts to, to try to cut through the ice to get their ship up to where Elephant Island was, but they still weren't able to do it. And Shackleton told the men, we're getting there, we're going to try it one more time. And they were able to cut a path this time. And they made it all the way up to where Elephant Island was. And to their complete surprise, every one of those men they had left were standing on the beach with their packs ready to get on the boat. They were well prepared. And so they got them, got them on the ship, and they set sail back up to the UK. And Shackleton called the guys in. Their leader was there. He called them all in, and he, he, he asked them how they were able to get aboard so quickly, why they were standing there on the the beach, ready to go. And the leader told him, he said, well, every morning we would get up. I would begin to roll up my sleeping bag, tell the guys, get all your stuff ready because the boss may come today. So every day they would get ready. Every day they would get prepared. They would pack up and get ready because maybe today's the day. Maybe today was the day. And so they were always prepared for what might come, even though it took a very, very long time to come. You see, preparation is not often something we think about when the thing we're trying to prepare for seems to never come. And when it talks about, Scripture talks about preparing for the Lord, we need to always be ready, because you never know. And in preparation, the question is then, how do we prepare because as we're waiting for Jesus to come back from Revelation, as we're wait, waiting for Jesus to come back, lots of stuff happens between now and then. 
problems arise, issues come up. Well, then how do I prepare, not just for Jesus coming back, how do I prepare for all the intervening problems in the middle of that time frame? Well, what we're going to see today in Matthew chapter 26 is what to do, how to prepare for the problems, how to prepare when the pressure increases in our lives. You see, here in Matthew 26, which is where we're going to be, that's on page 832 if you're going to use a Bible in the pew rack. And you're welcome to take one of those home if you don't have a Bible. Everybody needs one, so feel free to take that one. We've got others we can replace it with. Uh, but Matthew, or Matthew chapter 26 is where we're going to be, down in verse 36. Uh, Jared started this series last week. We're looking at uh, the last you know, 12 or to 15 hours uh, before Jesus was crucified. And as we saw last week, he, they had been in the upper room. They had, uh, Jesus had washed the disciples' feet. Judas had left to go uh, uh, gather the mob to come and get Jesus. And then Jesus uh, stops and prays. And he does this incredible prayer in John chapter 17. Then they pack up from the upper room where they had the Last Supper. And they head out to the Mount of Olives or the garden at the base of the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the middle of the night. I mean, I mean, it's right around midnight-ish, somewhere in there. We're not totally sure. It's somewhere right in that, that span of time. So look at Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So they head out to the garden, Jesus, 11 disciples, probably a few other hangers-on disciples, and they go out there to the garden. Jesus tells everybody to wait in this one spot, and he takes Peter, James, and John a little bit further. And it says that he begins to be sorrowful and troubled. He begins to have, have this, this anxiety weighed on him because of what's about to occur. That doesn't mean he's He's doubtful about what's about to occur. That doesn't mean he's necessarily even uh, unsure whether he's going to go through with it. But what he's about to endure is an incredible amount in the crucifixion, bearing the sins of the world uh, that he is going to walk with. But not just that, the abandonment of every one of his followers will be weighing on him as well. And he fully anticipates what's about to happen. He completely knows what's about to happen because that's the whole reason he came. He knows exactly what's coming. You know, we can often get riddled with anxiety because we anticipate something that might never happen. And it's the anticipation of the maybe that bothers us so much. But here Jesus knows exactly what's coming down the pipe. And he's sorrowful, and he's troubled. And in reality, he's told his disciples exactly what's going to happen. He told them, we are on the way to Jerusalem to be crucified. He said, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. But don't worry, I'm going to raise from the dead. Well, the disciples, I don't know if, they, if it was blocked from their view or if maybe they thought he was just telling another parable. Or, or what, but they didn't pick up on what he was saying. So that when things begin to go down, they don't really realize what's happening, that he already prepped them for this. And so Jesus, anticipating what's happening, begins to be sorrowful, begins to be troubled. 
And so they go to this garden, gets them over here to pray, or, or puts them here. He says, sit here while I go over there and pray. It's also an interesting point of note that, you know, sin entered the world through a garden, and here Jesus enters a garden just before paying for that sin. And so he takes Peter, James, and John, verse 38, and he says to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So he tells Peter, James, and John, watch with me. That word watch literally means stay awake, be alert, pay attention. So he says, you guys, I know it's the middle of the night, but you stay awake, be alert, pay attention. He's preparing them for something. They don't know what he's preparing them for, but he's trying to to tell them something's coming, be ready for it. And then he goes a little bit further and he prays. And, and, and as from what we can gather, he doesn't go too far away. He goes with it still within earshot because the disciples know what he's praying because they wrote it down. And so he's off here just a little bit, uh, a little ways away and he's praying. They can still hear him. And he prays, if it is possible, let this cup, this cup of suffering, this cup of pain pass from me. He says, but not as I will in my flesh, my humanness, He says, I know this is the whole reason I came was to pay for their sins. And I'm ready to walk into this moment. And so he prays this. Verse 40. Now, before we get into what he says here, I mean, you can already see it, but he prays that verse 39, but he doesn't just say it one time and walk back to the disciples. Because look at what he says in verse 40. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? So Jesus had been praying for an hour. And you can infer in the way he says this, he considers this to be a short prayer. Anybody ever prayed for an hour and thought it was short? In the middle of the night at 1 a.m.? And get frustrated that somebody fell asleep when they were supposed to be praying with you? You know, uh, (laughs) I wasn't going to tell this, but um, I'm telling on myself. Um, I've got the spiritual gift of being able to fall asleep anywhere. Um, I, could, I could stand here, shut my eyes, and fall asleep on the stage. I've gotten it even <laughs> so bad. There's been times uh, that when Katie and I were dating, we would talk to each other and pray with each other over the phone that I would fall asleep in the prayers. But not the prayers she was praying. I would fall asleep while I was praying. That's how it was. And, of course, you fall asleep. You try to play it, play it off. Oh, I was just in the moment. I was, it was me and, me and Jesus uh, there. Uh, are you asleep? No, it's just me. I'm, I'm with God right now. And, um, and I absolutely was asleep. <laughs> you remember? Yeah, yes, of course he does. Um, uh, and, uh, but the disciples here, Jesus told them, watch. He says, stay alert. This is their one job. Pay attention. Jesus walks over to pray, all of them asleep. Boom, just out, just unconscious. And so Jesus comes back to them, could you just not stay awake for one hour? And if I'm Peter, James, and John, I'm thinking, Jesus, it's 1 a.m., an hour? Like, in the middle of the night, you want me to stay awake, sitting down under a tree. This is, a, this is an impossible task. He said, I gave you one job, 
Just watch. Just pay attention. Just, just be alert. Just be prepared. Something's coming. Couldn't you just pray with me? Couldn't you just watch with me? And then this time he does tell him to pray. Uh, verse 41, he says, watch. There's that word again. Stay awake, be alert, and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. As I get, you want, your spirit is willing, you, you, you want to obey, you want to walk with me, but your flesh is weak and you give in. He says, just watch with me, be alert with me, and pray. If you're watching and praying, then you won't fall into temptation, but be praying in preparation for what's coming. Get ready, guys. I'm not sticking you out here in the woods for no reason. He says, watch with me and pray. Verse 42. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So he prays the same thing. But this time we don't get a time frame. It's implied, you know, it's similar to the last one. He's praying for a long time. Verse 43. And again he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. Again he came and found them sleeping. Found them asleep. So he's told them to watch. He went away and prayed one time. Came back. They were asleep. He woke them up. Then he went away and prayed a second time. Came back. Found them asleep. But notice he doesn't wake them up this time. Time number two, he doesn't wake them up. Verse 44. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. I find that very interesting. He doesn't wake them up this time. He wakes them up the first time, but not the second time. He lets them sleep. He lets them sit there, lets them stay. They're not watching with him. They're not praying with him, which is what he told them to do. They're just fast asleep, allowing themselves to succumb to the moment. And he goes off and prays again. Well, again, we're not told how long this time is either. It could be just as long or even longer. Verse 45, then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So he says, get, wake up, get up. It's, the time for sleeping is later. Now it's time to get stuff done. Now it's time uh, the time has come. So many times before, he has, he has done miracles. Jesus has done miracles and told people, uh, uh, don't tell anybody because my hour has not yet come. Well, now he's telling the disciples the hour has come. Now is the moment we've been waiting for all this time. Now is, is the, the, the climax, the pinnacle of the whole story of, of humanity comes to this moment. Get up. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Unbelievers, people who, do, who will not follow, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And now that's very interesting. That I want you to notice because of what we're about to read. Jesus is referring to Judas here, obviously. Jesus calls him betrayer. And in the previous verse, he said the son of man is betrayed. And now he says he's the betrayer. Now, again, the disciples would not have registered what Jesus is saying even though he's already told them that it was Judas. In the upper room, when he said, one of you will betray me, 
They're all sitting around the table. All of them said, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And then when Judah said, is it me? Jesus said, yep, it's you. I know, you know, get up and go do what you're going to go do. Nobody in the room picked up on that. They didn't figure it out. And so now here they are in the garden, all the disciples except Judas. And so Jesus has told them, one of you will betray me. And now he says, my betrayer is at hand. I think at this point, it begins to click for him. Because while he was still speaking, verse 47, while he was still speaking, so my betrayer is at hand, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders of the people. So Judas shows up with a mob, with weapons. Now these weapons are very distinct because swords would have been weapons of the Romans. So possibly there's some Roman guards in the mix. Clubs would have been weapons of the guards of the chief priests. So you've got all these guys coming in the middle of the night to the Mount of Olives, which is just right outside Jerusalem, to the Garden of Gethsemane at the base. And they show up here in the middle of the night. Verse 48, now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man sees him. Now, I've always wondered, why was it necessary for Judas to give him a sign? Like, because in my mind, and the way I've seen it portrayed in movies and TV shows and whatnot, there's Jesus and his disciples. They're the only guys on the hill in the middle of the night. It's obvious they're the ones. Why does he need to walk up and do this? I mean, it, was a, it wasn't a very common first century greeting, but it still was a first century greeting. Well, thinking about this and... and reading through this many, many times, it really hit me. They're there for Passover, for Passover. But they wouldn't have been the only ones who came into town for Passover. You see, what would happen is when people would come into Jerusalem for a feast or a festival that they had to come to town for several times a year, is once all of the hotels and inns were full, the people would camp all outside the city, all around it. So on the Mount of Olives, uh, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus and his disciples would not have been the only guys camping out there. They, it would have been packed with people. Because from what we can tell, during some of these festivals, particularly Passover, there may have been up to a million people in Jerusalem. Up to. That it could have been 100,000 people that may have lived in the surrounding area, and it would have multiplied by 10 times when it came to these kind of festivals these kind of feasts. So the Passover, that's a million people in a first century town. Uh, It would have been massive amount of people. So there would have been people all over the Garden of Gethsemane, camping everywhere. And they would have known this. That's why Judas comes in and says, I've got a sign for you, a signal. We're going to go out there and we're going to weave our way through the people. We're going to get to him. I'm going to point him out to you. I'm going to show you. Here's the sign. I'm going to greet him, give him a kiss. That's your signal. Grab him. When you see me give the signal, that's when you grab him. I know where we, where we camp. Every time we come to Jerusalem, we camp in the spot. We were camping in the spot last night when we showed up. Let's just go. We'll get there. Some nights they had gone to Bethany just over the hill to spend the night. But here they're just right outside of town in preparation for this moment. And so verse 49. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Now, I want you to notice in verse 50. Remember, Jesus called him a betrayer just a few seconds ago. But to Judas, this is what he says. 
Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Jesus, even though he recognized what Judas was doing, calling him a betrayer, Jesus still calls him friend in the moment. Jesus still calls him friend. If you were Jesus, would you call Judas friend? Or would you be thinking up some other names? I picked you out of the crowd and you were with me for years and now you're doing this mess. But Jesus says, friend, do what you came to do. There's nothing accusatory. There's nothing, there's no animosity in his language here. He just says, friend, do what you came to do. The mob comes and they seize him. Now, as we get into these next couple of verses, you got to remember, some of these guys that are in Jesus' crew did not come from the cleanest of backgrounds. Uh, they were not all above board kind of guys. Some of them were pretty rough. As many of you know what happens next. Verse 51, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now we know from the Gospel of John, this is Peter. John is always very quick to call out when Peter does something bad. Uh, and we know that, that, that Peter did this. But they come up and they grab Jesus. And so Peter's gut reaction is to pull out his sword and swipe at him. Like, get your hands off of my Jesus. And in doing that, I mean, I don't know how he gets a clean strike without hitting him anywhere else on his body. But just somehow he just swipes up and gets the guy's ear just right and it flies off. And somehow, miraculously, in the moment, none of the other soldiers there with swords kill Peter. If this were at any other time, Peter would be dead by the time his sword finished swinging. I mean, he would be on the, I mean, it would be over. But Jesus, I, I believe, I mean, we see it actually in another one of the Gospels when uh, they come up and confront him, are you Jesus? And he says, I am. And they all stumble backwards when he says it. That Jesus' presence kept them from striking out at Peter. And Jesus, we learn from the Gospel of John, heals the man's ear. Takes it, heals the man's ear. It's all back. And this is in front of the mob. The people who came to arrest Jesus, to take him to be executed. He does this phenomenal miracle against one of the guys who came to arrest him. Heals his ear. Uh, and it says... Verse 52, then he said to him, put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? He, he rebukes Peter in the moment. Peter's attempt to fight this opposition, this attempt for somebody to come and mess up what he perceives to be God's plan, Peter strikes out, and Jesus says, stop. Don't you think if I wanted a fight to be fought, I could fight the fight? I don't need you to fight my fight. I'm Jesus. I could call down 12 legions of angels. And a legion was a, a, a Roman army a group of men, usually about 6,000. So, I mean, I don't think the number is important here, but in a literal sense, that would be 72,000 troops against this little mob. Jesus says, you don't, 
you think if I really wanted this fought, I could, I could call down 72,000 angels against these 15 guys. But I wouldn't even need them because I'm Jesus. We see from Revelation when Jesus shows up on the white horse, he fights the whole battle by himself. He says, don't you think if I wanted the battle fought, I could fight it? Victory can sti- is still going to happen, but I don't need you to swing the sword, Peter. He says, stop. Put your sword back where it goes. Look at what he says in verse 54. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? He says, if I were to call down the angels and I were to fight this fight, then scripture wouldn't be fulfilled and there wouldn't be salvation for the earth. This thing has to happen this way. It's not what you anticipated, Peter. It's not how you thought it would play out. It's not what you thought would happen. It's, it's going to be painful. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be suffering. It's going to be complicated. And you don't see the end result right now in this temporary world. But Peter, it has to happen. It has to happen. Verse 55. So he says this to Peter. And now look, at that hour he said to the crowds... So he turns from addressing Peter and the disciples to now addressing the mob and any hangers-on that would have woken up there in the middle of the night. And he says to them who have him uh, uh, by the arms, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So Jesus says to the mob and the crowd, you're coming at me in the middle of the night when there's no one around to see except these people out here on the hill. I was there with the thousands of people in the temple every single day right next to you and you didn't touch me until right now in the middle of the night. But this has to happen. He's telling them now. This has to happen for salvation to come. This has to happen. Scripture said this was going to happen. And as he says this, they, they, they take him and they're, they're you know, frog marching him in, back into the city for his you know, trial. And in that moment, there's this one of the saddest sections of Scripture. All the disciples left him and fled. All of them. All of them left him. They abandoned Jesus in this moment. Peter had just been ready to fight. He had swung his sword, and a seconds after swinging his sword, ready to fight, he's running with the rest of them, scared out of his mind, abandoning Jesus. Their lives, and Jesus being arrested, their lives were instantly complicated and unexpected and difficult and anxiety-laden, and they run from Jesus. That's their gut reaction is to run and save themselves in the best way they thought, which was to get as far away from Jesus as possible. They weren't ready to face this level of difficulty. In the upper room, they said, we will go to the death for you, Jesus. Peter said that, I'm willing to die for you. That's when Jesus said, well, you're going to betray me three times tonight. Deny me three times tonight. They weren't ready for this kind of difficulty. They weren't ready for it to get this complicated. They weren't ready or or, or prepared for this spiritual battle. Because honestly, what had just happened, they had slept instead of prayed. Jesus said, stay alert and pray. And they slept instead. 
And then they were faced with, up until this point, the mo- most difficult thing they would have had to have faced thus far. Jesus told them to be alert. Uh, alert. He told them to be watchful because something was coming. He told them to pray in preparation, and instead they slept. You know, far too often in our own lives, we are spiritually asleep and not prepared for what we are going to face. Just like the disciples, Jesus has tried to warn us and get us ready, but then we're faced with a difficulty and we self-destruct because we have distracted ourselves with a wide variety of things and found ourselves to be spiritually asleep. But self-distraction leads to self-destruction. When we distract ourselves with everything in this world there is to distract ourselves with, from binging the latest show to ingesting so much news we can't take anymore, to, to uh, worrying about how our lives are going to play, play out or how this or that is going to get paid for or how this health thing is going to take place and, or how this other thing is going to play out or what's going to happen at the job. We don't know. But we, we get distracted with all these things things and in being distracted we have walked away from Jesus when honestly he's the only one that can lead us through that stuff but we've allowed ourselves to be so distracted that we fold under the pressure you know there was a time in college it was my junior year of college I was getting ready for finals and the way it played out, I had three finals on one morning. I had a, uh, I'm trying, I, I don't remember the exact times, but my three finals were spaced out. They went from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m., and they were back to back to back. The first final was philosophy. Awesome. The second final was Greek. Fantastic. And the last one was systematic theology, which is an overview of everything we believe as Christians. And it would have been difficult enough with philosophy and Greek, but systematic theology, you know, typically in a college class, you, or in any class, you get grades all throughout the semester. You do papers and tests and quizzes and all that. Well, this professor for systematic theology had the brilliant idea, you get two grades, makes it so much easier. You do one paper and you get a final, and you turn the paper in when you come for the final. So you have no idea how you're doing in the class when you show up on the last day for the final. You bring your paper and you're shaking. I really hope this is good enough. I really really hope I I did enough on this paper. And I really hope I remember enough for this final. And you find out days later how you you did. And he was the only guy that taught some of these classes, so I had to take him like four times. Um, And he did that in every single one of those. And so I I was studying all week. I think it was like a Thursday. uh, uh, and, And the the finals were all that morning. I was trying to get through these, and I had a couple other finals too, and, and it, it just consumes your mind. But then I had, for some reason, I had gotten distracted by the other finals or gotten distracted by just dead week and, and, and craziness, and uh, I was spending most of my study time on the night before the finals, which if you're going to be going to college soon, don't ever do that. That is a dumb, 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 dumb idea. Don't, especially when you got three finals on the same morning. Don't do that. Well, I did, and uh, I stayed awake till about 4 a.m. Bad idea again, night before three finals. I think I'll just get a couple hours of sleep, wake up, review those note cards, and then, and then book it to class. 
And I wake up to my phone ringing. And I pick up the phone. Hello. And it's my friend Spencer. He says, Josh, where are you? I said, I'm in bed. What? He goes, it's 8.05. What? And I'm, I'm immediately awake. You ever have one of those? Like you're really tired and then something happens and you're just, it clicks on. Like there's no grogginess. Like everything shakes out and I pop out of bed. And uh, it just so happened that that year, my, my dorm room was on the bottom floor next to the parking lot. And I'd always park right next to my window. So I wouldn't have to walk all the way around the building to get in. I'd just open my window and jump in. And so conveniently, I didn't go to the bathroom. I didn't wash my face. I didn't look in the mirror to comb my hair. I grabbed my backpack, hoping there was a pin, jumped out the window. I didn't even shut the window. When I got back later on, the window was still open. I jumped out the window, jumped in my car, which... Living on campus, we weren't supposed to drive to class. Uh, the parking spots over by the buildings were supposed to be for commuters. I didn't care. I was late. I jumped in the car, and I just booked it. I mean, I drove all the way as, as fast as you're allowed, probably, on campus, and got over there, parked, ran up in there. My friend Spencer was sitting in the back row of the philosophy class, and he'd already grabbed me a paper. And I, I, I remember I looked at my watch. I slid into my seat at 8.12, at 8.05, I woke up, and somehow I got into my seat at 8.12. And uh, this philosophy professor's um, philosophy of life was to fail as many of us as possible. He told us that on the first day of class. So, so I, I rushed in there. I mean, this massive final. I'm just writing as, as vigorously as I can write. And uh, I got right up until the end of time. He called time, and I'm putting the period on my last sentence. I turn it in and run, I mean literally run to my next final, which is Greek. And I run into that class and I pull out my pencil and I'm just just going as fast as I can possibly go. And I got done with that and I had a little bit of a gap. Then I had 10 minutes and I, I was finally able to go to the bathroom and then get to my last one. And luckily I had already printed off my my paper for my last class, and I had it in my bag. Uh, I guess the Lord allowed me to anticipate this terrible, terrible moment. And I turned that paper in, sat down and did that, and I, I, can, still, I can still feel it. Like, I could take, go right back to that room. I finished, handed that paper in, and it was like all of the exhaustion hit in that. It was like the adrenaline drove me until that moment. And then I, I barely made it. I didn't even go to my car. I just left it parked there. And uh, went on a bench and just sat for a while, um, just completely wiped. Because I had allowed myself to be distracted in the lead up and almost self-destructed that morning. Just don't want to leave you hanging. I passed everything, thank goodness. Um, I have a degree in the shed in a box. So, you know, all those papers are so important. And uh, But God supernaturally provided that friend to wake me up and get me there. But I had self-distracted myself and almost led to my destruction. <laughs> I almost blew it. I mean, those other classes, I had grades all semester, but that one class, that was all of my grade was that one day. I had to be there. Self-distraction leads to self-destruction, and we do it all the time. Doom scroll all the time and don't even realize how long it's been. We, we, we go through this, try to, try to numb our minds, our hearts, and so we don't have to think about the issue that's really uh, at our hearts. When God has already told us how to prepare, Jesus did it. He told his disciples how to do it because, you see, prayer prepares us for the pressure. Prayer prepares us 
for the pressure. Jesus knows what's coming, and he's already laid it on us how to do it, just like the disciples. Stay alert, be with me, and pray. And he, he, he didn't just tell us, he showed us. Jesus knew what was coming, and how did he pre- uh, prepare? He went off and he prayed. And if there was ever a human being in the history of humanity who didn't need to pray, it was Jesus. Because in praying, he's talking to himself. He is God. But he does it anyway, showing us how it's done. In preparation for this this moment that all of history hangs on, Jesus goes off and he prays. He set this time aside specifically for this, knowing what's coming, being prepared for what's coming, he prays. You see, we, we, we may be anticipating something that's coming. We may be in the middle of something. Some of you, I don't know all of your lives. I know some of you, so, some of what's going on. And some of y'all are in deep in the mess, in the pressure, in the problems, the difficulty, the grief, the pain. And even when you're in the middle of it, don't stop praying. Keep praying. Don't stop. Keep going. There's the famous story of the preacher who was in the delivery room for his baby, his, 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 his oldest being born. And it was time to, to, to give birth. And the, the preacher said, we need to stop and pray. And the doctor said, you can pray, but we're going to push. We're going to push and pray. We're going to do it and pray. Do what you're going to do and pray. Nehemiah chapter 1, he went into the king and prayed while he was going. Do it and pray if you're in the middle of it. But prayer isn't supposed to be a a tool we pull out at the last second when we have absolutely exhausted all the other tools. Prayer is supposed to be something we're constantly doing in preparation for what we don't even know is coming down the road. Prayer prepares us for the pressure that we can't even anticipate yet. Jesus has given us this gift of prayer to prepare us for what's coming. The disciples didn't realize what was moments away. But Jesus had already given them the answer, just pray with me. But rather than pray, they were spiritually and physically asleep. So the question you have to ask yourself is, whether you're in the mess or or a mess is coming that you don't see, are you prepared? Are you ready? Are you prayed up? I mean, Jesus, that first time, he prayed for an hour and thought that was short. Some of us pray for 60 seconds, and we think that's way too long. We're already through our list. Like, I got nothing else to say. Let's just sit here. I'm going to keep going. I'll, I'll read my list again. And our mind is, is you know, down the rabbit hole of uh, uh, thinking about, you know, the next time we got to cut the grass, even though we're still like a month away. You know, and you don't know how you got there, but you started here over with prayer and you ended up over here and your mind is just wandering all over the place because Satan wants to keep you from praying. Because he knows prayer will prepare you. Prayer brings God's intervention, God's hand in a unique way. Prayer works. Are you prepared for what's coming? Are you prepared for what you've got now? Then pray. Pray. Don't stop. Don't let anything stop you from praying. Here Jesus is, literally seconds away from being arrested, taken to be crucified. The whole purpose for him coming, bringing our salvation, and he set aside several hours to go on the hill and pray. He wasn't going to walk into it without prayer. Prayer matters. 
It's not just an afterthought. It's not just a, a checklist type of deal. Prayer changes the world. Prayer prepares you. So are you prepared for what's coming? Are you praying enough? Every spiritual giant I've ever known that have gotten to the end of their life uh, and, 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 and then they go on to heaven, they will tell you, every single one, spiritual giant, you ask them, what's one thing you wish you could do again? One thing you wish you could do over? They said, I wish I would pray more. One of the greatest spiritual giants I ever knew, a man I met, he told me that one month before he died. I wish I could pray more. I wish I could, if I could go back, I would pray more. Billy Graham said it too. He said, if I could go back and do one thing better and different, I would pray more. And he was Billy Graham. I would pray more. You're not going to get to the end of your life and say, man, I prayed too much. I wish I could have that time back. I would have binged that extra show on Netflix. If I could have just had, I would have not prayed and then I would have done that. At the end of the, at the end of our lives, even beyond that, in a thousand years, the thing that's going to matter is our communication with the Lord. Are you prepared for what this broken world is going to put on your lap? But even beyond that, are you prepared for the next thousand years? Do you know Jesus? The only question ultimately that matters do you believe that he's God's son, that he died so all your sins would be forgiven? And he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. That's salvation. That's eternal life. So here in just a sec, I'm going to pray. Music team's going to come. We're going to sing a song. And you have the opportunity then to make a decision. Will you believe in Jesus today? Will you believe in him? For the first time, say, I believe in Jesus. I want to be saved. I want eternal life. Maybe what you need to do in that moment, I mean, you can come and believe. You can come and join the church. Come and say, I need to be baptized. Show the world I belong to Jesus. We can get all that done, accomplished, taken care of. Maybe what you need to do is you need to come and pray. Say, Jesus, I need help preparing. Come and pray for you. Come and pray for somebody else who you know is in the mess and they need help preparing. Come and pray for them. Lay it all out. Pray for them. You know, I was listening to a Charles Stanley sermon this morning. It was about prayer. And in it, he said, some of us have, have made it through some of the most difficult things we've ever been through in our lives only because somebody else was praying for us and we didn't realize it. Who is it that the Lord has put on your heart to pray for? Family member, friend, some random person you talk to in the line at Easy Mart. Are you prepared today?